Father, this morning, among so many other things to give thanks for, we do praise you because your deeds have been recorded for us in your holy scriptures. We are forgetful people, and when limited as we are in our perception, too often fail to remember how you have intervened in our lives, how many instances of your blessing, of your provision, of your safety, of your care over us, we experience moment by moment on a daily basis. Yet you have given us this record of your amazing power, grace and glory, intervening in history, recorded for us to see the glories manifest in the pages of your holy word, how the sovereign of time has intervened to save a people to the praise of his great name. For these, your works, we are thankful, and for the record of the same in the Holy Scriptures. They speak to us, Lord, with hope and with clarity. They speak to us with truth. They speak to us with prophecy. And they speak to us with an understanding of our own hearts, and they speak with authority. Even in this confession, we pray that our minds, our souls, and the hearing, and our ears, Lord, would recognize the power and the glory and the authority with which you proclaim your nature and ours to us in your word this day, that we might bow before Christ proclaimed in his word, that through the preaching of the word, the washing of the water of the same, we might be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ more this day than we have in the past, because his word, effective, not returning void, powerful and unwithering, is seeking, is uh, is transforming the lost and transforming the saved into Jesus Christ's own image, the perfect and holy representation of the Father, the Word in flesh. In His holy name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. <clears throat> Hallelujah. What a great gift and privilege. It is for us today to worship the Lord our God, to give praise to Jesus Christ our Savior. Turn with me in His Word, if you would, to Psalm 124. Let us continue in our second Sunday a month series in the Psalms, and in our series within a series, the Songs of Ascent. The first of these is Psalm 120. So we've covered several of them so far. This is the second written by David, by the way, as you see in the title. And it joins the other 14 songs of ascent in Scripture as a soundtrack to set the tone and to, if you will, uh, orient the heart and the affections of the believer to the priority to worship the Lord in the presence of His people in the corporate assembly at the place and where the conditions of God's favor have been met so that the covenant between a sinner and a holy God might be restored. This is the historical picture of the occasion for these songs. They would accompany, likely, the people of God as they journeyed to ascend the hill of the Lord, which is what Mount Zion and temple worship, tabernacle worship in Jerusalem represented. And there they would provide for the people a, they would, uh, something to focus their attention and to shape their thoughts and to build their expectation for the glorious blessing of worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth. Today in Psalm 124, I have a title for you. It is this, Public Square Worship. Where should worship take place? Well, among other places, today we see precedent for public square worship in Psalm 124. In this world that God has made, He deserves glory and honor. Every bit as much as our own hearts and in the walls of the church building, so to speak. The aim of this morning's message is to build our confidence in the name of the Lord. 
as I perceive this is one of the intents of this song, that the hearer, the singer, would build their confidence, their faith would be built in the name of the Lord as they are reminded by these words who, in fact, he is. With that introduction and your hearts and your uh, standing in reverence before the Lord, would you rise for the reading of the word of God today? This is Psalm 124, a song of ascents of David. Hear now the word of God, verse 1. If it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Verse 8, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. This is the word of God. You may be seated. This song of ascent written by King David, Psalm 124, is a worship song. And I submit it's a national anthem. A worship song and a national anthem. Could they be one and the same? Well, certainly, and I'll make the case in this message that they ought to be. What is a greater anthem than recognizing the reason for your own existence? The sovereign hand that has preserved you and the authority and foundation upon which every strong society is built and the only and exclusive foundation for hope for a people, uh, be it today or 2,000 plus years ago, thousands of years ago when this was written. A national anthem ought to be a worship song. A song like this one, which extols and honors the Lord, who is responsible in His care and kindness, in His providence and in His salvation, to preserve a people for the praise of His name. This song was written by Israel's godly king, David, and it stands as a universal call to worship. In this installment, in the Songs of Ascent, there's a shift, a shift to the second person, uh, directed towards the crowd, toward the hearer, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, and then calling the people to confess the same. In this second person, we have the perspective, we have the people's attention directed to the Lord, and there's a command to confess and to affirm that He is their source of help and hope. And this is similar to what we do when we open our services on Sundays, by the way. When we stand and read the Word of God together, what are we doing? We're confessing aloud together our worship as we begin each service. And in like, likewise, in the context, historical context and purpose of this song, so the nation of Israel in corporate gathering was to repeat after the worship leader the words of this song. We see this from the first verse. A psalm like this would be appropriate for days of remembrance. That is remembering what God had done in His grace and in His power in his supernatural intervention to preserve, rescue, save his people from their enemies. Perhaps a national holiday commemorating a victorious battle, like that battle we'll touch upon today, David versus Goliath, and by extension, the Philistines versus the Israelites, when the Lord gave his people victory. That was a day worth commemorating. And a psalm like this would be a good text to do that. There's other milestone uh, or other milestones of historical significance come to, not, come to mind, like when the Lord's word was delivered on Mount Sinai. 
today, just making an application to our time, too many days like this come and go on our own calendar without a public call to worship by our leaders. The 4th of July comes and goes with little more than fireworks and a parade and people having one more excuse to take off work and to take and, uh, and the occasion to maybe drink more or party more than they otherwise would. Is that the purpose for a holiday? Well, Psalm 124 gives us a better precedent for holding our attention and for establishing a perspective in days to commemorate significant moments, yes, even in our own history. National revival, may I suggest, will certainly be accompanied by repentance in this regard. Let us pray for the day when the glory of God becomes the chief end of our own national identity. Oh, for the day when the glory of God might be the chief end of our own national identity. This was the call of David and the worship leaders in Israel to the people at the time. We need to repent if this is not the case today. And here's an application for you in the meantime. You know, what might we do to work towards this end? Well, in faith and in prayer and in obedience, we might do the following. Open up your calendar if you have a paper one or go into the app on your phone if you have an electronic one. And perhaps you just write on certain holidays through the course of this next year a little note. Read Psalm 124 today. That way when the 4th of July comes and you're gathered for family worship or, be, or, you, you, or something of the sort and you're proclaiming to your family some significance for the day, you can say to them, Family, repeat after me. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, we would have been swallowed up alive. But God has preserved us as a family, as a church, and by extension, God has preserved us as a people all the way back to the formative days of our own national history. With that introduction, let me give you a little heading or a heading and a short outline for these eight verses. Here's the heading, a king's song for the people declaring. This is a king's song for the people declaring the following. Number one, a national confession, verses one through three. Uh, number two, the nature of danger or the nature of the peril, verses four through uh, seven. And then number three, the closing verse declaring the name of the Lord. A king's song for the people declaring a national confession, the nature of the peril they face, and thirdly, the name of the Lord. First of all, verses 1 through 3, the humble king confesses the following, and he calls his people to join him. Verse 1, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel not say, now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. <clears throat> now, a few psalms ago, David had authored another song of ascent. This was 122, a song of ascent of David. And we suggested a fitting occasion, and that sermon was the moment when the ark of God returned to its proper location in Jerusalem. And you remember that moment as it's recorded in other pages of Scripture when David rejoiced and praised, joined the people in giving his uh, magnifying the Lord on this occasion, singing something like, perhaps, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Well, if that occasion is a good background 
and context. To understand the usefulness of Psalm 122, then we might ask, is there another incident in the life, in the biography of David, that might provide a fitting occasion for our song, Psalm 124? Let me suggest you, as you is, if you're able, can turn with, uh, turn with me to 1 Samuel 17, that the conflict between the Philistines and Israel, David and Goliath, that very famous story, would be a fitting occasion for Psalm 124, as the Lord, against all odds, and in a supernatural display of His power, grants His people victory. In 1 Samuel 17, we pick up on a few of the details. Verse 50, so David prevailed over this Philistine. What was his name, kids? There's a huge Philistine. David defeated him. Shout out his name if you know it. Thank you. David prevailed over the Philistine. And what were his weapons, kids? Did he have a sword? Did he have a spear, a shield? What's that? He did have a sword later, but at first, how did he kill the guy? What did he use? Sling. Thank you. So with a sling and with a stone, he struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Verse 51. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him. And what happened next, kids? Cut off his head. Thank you. Cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines. They plundered their camp. And so David took the head of the Philistine, brought it to Jerusalem, and put his armor in his tent. Wow, what a significant moment. David, in this occasion, as God's appointed warrior, perhaps not the first choice in man's eyes, in fact, certainly not. A shepherd boy is not cut out for a battle campaign like this. Everyone quaking in fear, shaking in their boots, because this giant hero of their enemies is a formidable force, and no one, save one shepherd boy, has the courage to face him. When he does, however, the people gain courage, and as the Lord grants the victory, they join in pursuing their enemies, and they rout them once and for all. And then we hear the following in chapter 18. Worship songs follow this event. As they were coming home, verse 6, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. So Saul was very pleased with that. He pinned a medal on David's chest and he said, everybody look at our new national hero, right? No, Saul was upset. Why? Next verse, 8. Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The irony of this incident is this. On the day when David defeated Israel's greatest enemy, at the time it would appear, Goliath, and the country he represented, the Philistines, he also made another enemy that would terrorize him for years, and that was the king, Saul. Why did Saul become David's enemy? And what, is, and what was missed in this situation? Well, Saul did not share the heart of David. 
And because Psalm 124 was not on his mind, therefore Saul was jealous of the victory that God gave the young shepherd boy. Again, Psalm 124. What if Saul had said this? If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. Two things. David, in the heart of Psalm 124, turns the praises of the people from himself. David has slain his ten thousands to the Lord. No, it was the Lord who was on our side. This is the confession of the humble king. But you can see how tempting that would be, can you not? You come back and the people are praising you in the streets. Talk about a parade. The streets are lined with ladies dancing, tambourines and harps. I imagine pedals are thrown into the air and everybody sets their daily work aside. And here you are, you're riding in a chariot and, here, and you have the weapon, you know, weapons at your side, your uh, humble clothing and your sling and stone and suddenly these things become important relics of your victory that day. And then the sword in your hand of Goliath uh, be, receives a prominent location among the people. The day will be commemorated and remembered, and you are a national hero. You get the medal and everything. How tempting would it be to receive the praises of, those, of the people? We can tell in the heart of Saul, he wanted those praises. And when David got them, listen, I'm the king. I'm head and shoulders above him. I'm the one who deserves you know, the praise. And there became a sort of rivalry between Saul and David. David, a man after God's own heart, however, knew who is truly responsible for the victory in that day. Not him, not his great skills with a sling and stone, but no, the Lord delivered us from our enemies. God used a humble and a unlikely servant and a crude weapon in order to glorify himself. Not to steal glory from someone else as if it were a contest and not to elevate David as the king of kings, but instead to use this incident to demonstrate if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, Israel should say we would have been swallowed up by our enemies. So we see the triumphal singing recorded exalting David. And we see the heart of David in Psalm 124 directing the attention of the people not to him but to the Lord. And we see by contrast the heart of the wicked king Saul who was jealous because he wanted the glory for himself. Humble leaders of character must direct the affections, the attention, and the affirmation of the people heavenward. Heaven, or a humble leaders of character. They're called to be competent, responsible. They're called to be assertive and where appropriate to be very brave and bold. But they're not called to take the glory for themselves. They're called instead to point beyond themselves that the affections, the attention, the affirmation of the people would glorify the Lord. Presidential candidates ought to study this quote-unquote speech. Sure, it's a song, but it would make a great speech as well. What if an inaugural address, what if a State of the Union address opened with Psalm 124? Repeat after me, a godly presidential candidate let, might say. Let America now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let's hear it. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, you could hear the crowd roar. When the yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Let's do it. All right. Good idea. So everyone repeat after me. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side. Amen. When the people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. Very good. Thank you.
That gives us an idea of the context. Here, the humble king actually leading the people in worship, he instructs them to direct their confession and their worship to the Lord. As I say, this is a great pattern and a principle that it would do well for us to learn. Let us pray that we would not seek leaders who would glorify themselves or ascribe to them glory that is instead due to the Lord, but instead that we would invest our confession and our safety not in the means and the arm strength of men, but instead in the arm of God. This is a public call to worship. As we've just noted in that little example where you repeated after me, this is a call response format song. It raises the question, where is an appropriate place or where is an appropriate context for a worship service? Well, if this song were to answer, it would say anywhere where the Lord is God. Wherever Jesus is Lord is an appropriate place for him to be worshiped. Is Jesus Lord in a stadium? I love it when a worship band comes to town and they're able to pack out. I know some of you recently saw Phil Wickham, I, I believe, at Target Center. Is that correct? And so that place holds, I don't know, 15, 20,000 people. It thrills my heart. I mean, I do hope that the heart and intentions of ministries or worship teams that would come in and to glorify God is indeed you know, uh, directed towards him. But insofar as it is, if you have a worship service with people singing at the top of their lungs to the tune of 15,000 in a public building or a building that is used for public events, it is something powerful indeed. And it warms my heart and I wish it would happen more frequently. Too often people gather in corporate settings in public places to amuse themselves, to exalt other things, to basically worship idols. But there are brief moments of exception to that, even in American society, where Christians gather together to do what? To glorify the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And a good heart and reason and motive for doing that is to recognize and remember if it had not been you who was on our side and it is on our side right now, we would surely be smoldering in the flames of judgment. But your mercy has spared the judgment we deserve. You have saved us, your people. You deserve the glory. And I may be a small throng. There may be just a minority of people who recognize that, but the Lord deserves to be glorified and magnified everywhere his kingdom extends. And it extends everywhere. It extends to state houses, to public schools. It extends to the public square, to courthouses, to Washington, D.C., to public parks, parks, and to streets in this country. And we need to be reminded of this. Psalm 124 is a good opportunity to do so. The congregants of these people, of these places, all of our society ought to hear and heed the worship call. Is that not the gospel? Worship the Lord or else. Acknowledge your creator of heaven and earth, your own savior, if you believe and trust his blood to save you or else. That's a call to worship, is it not? The first knee bows and confesses its sin and places hope in Jesus Christ as their savior. And that opens up the door to then a life of worship. And where's an appropriate place to worship the Lord? Everywhere where he reigns, everywhere our king rules. And he owns all the cosmos. The close of this chapter affirms as much. Under this national confession, we have a humble king. We have a public call to worship. And he recognizes that they are allies with heaven. In verses 2 and 3, listen to this. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Who is the most important ally? Is it the Assyrians in case Egypt would invade or vice versa? 
You know, you think of all of the uh, foreign policy at the time, just like today, nations, there's tensions, international tensions, geopolitics is, you know, basically codifies the sin nature of man into all sorts of conflict between different peoples and different motive forces, whether they be economic or the pride of man or the strength of kingdoms, empirical intentions. That was happening then and it's happening today. Our world is full, filled with conflict. So then we ask ourselves, well, we need someone, a State Department, to secure good allies. We need to make sure that we make good decisions, that the balance of power of, of the politics of the international affairs would weigh in our favor, our own national interest. And this governs and directs, again, much of what our government tries to do. That is, steady the pillars of the earth by their own hand. But it will not succeed. Why? Because our strength is not in our negotiating abilities or in alliances with people who are in rebellion with the Lord. But instead, the strength and true security lies with those who are allied with heaven. What are the conditions for securing and retaining Yahweh to be on your side in the fight? Isn't that a good question? We look to the Old Testament and we see what they are. When the people were surrounded by their enemies, when they were in a place of peril, there would be a call to repentance to fasting, and to public worship. This has happened in our own history, and to the degree that it has, it's an application of the pattern we see in Scripture, and it ought to be more frequent now. We run to so many other things, but they're all idolatrous, short of beginning with this priority, a confession of word and deed that says, if the Lord is not on our side, we will remain in danger. If the Lord is not on our side, we have no grounds for security. Just as David recognized then when the people rose up against us, like the Philistines with their hero Goliath. If the Lord had not been on their side, they would have been swallowed up alive. If the Lord has not been on our side in His mercy and His favor, we too would be swallowed up alive. We must repent of placing allegiance and investing safety and security and assurance in false idols. Entangling alliances are nothing but covenant compromise. Entangling alliances are covenant compromise. The jealousy of God's holiness forbids syncretism, that is, mixing with our faith other means of help and hope and salvation. So God's holiness is jealous for our attention and our affirmation as individuals and as a people. We are not to compromise our covenant relationship with Him. We're not to compromise our duty, our loyalty to Him as our ally in the name of security, safetyness, emergency, pragmatism, or otherwise. We go back and we reprise that Goliath-Philistine context of that conflict. And notice one more verse. This is in 1 Samuel 17, 26, I believe. David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? Listen. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? What gave David confidence? He was confident that Israel was an anointed and called nation. They were allied with God. I don't care how tall you are. I don't care if you're nine cubits in the air. I don't care if your spear weighs more than five other average spears put together. I don't care if you can holler and fill up you know, and bellow your threats and fill up this entire val uh, valley with your boasting. If you are outside of the covenant assurances of God, an uncircumcised Philistine, 
And if you are choosing as your enemy the armies of the living God, you're going to be struck dead. You will be struck dead. This is the basis for David's confidence that his army was allied with heaven, that his army was God's army. And therefore, no matter how physically formidable the enemy, they were doomed. And thus was, of course, the case. So we ask ourselves then, where, what is the ground of confidence that the Lord will preserve us? Well, repentance is due, is it not? To return to the Lord, to confess Him as our sole ally, and then everything secondarily underneath that priority. That the Lord would build within us a, a, a value to be in covenantal faithfulness to Him. Again, both as individuals, this is where it starts. We seek the Lord and be in right standing with Him, confess our sin, and seek repentance, keep short accounts with the Lord. And as we pray for His safety and mercy, our own confidence is built. But this application has more um, aspects to it as well, even as we see in the case here, it's a national confession. And so let us pray that even in our society, we would be careful to make our allies in heaven with heaven and that we would repent of allies elsewhere and that we would seek the not just our national interests, but the interests of that which glorifies God, and that there would be repentance in our land, a national confession. Secondly, this king's song for the people declares the nature of the peril that they face, the danger and threat that surrounds them. And David uses three pictures in this regard, a judgment's flood, malicious enemies, and deception's trap. So verse 4, he describes the danger as a flood. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Again, 5. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Verse 6, a malicious enemy, an enemy that seeks to destroy. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. He compares the danger that they face to being vulnerable prey to an uh, animal like a lion or a bear. Uh, verse 7, we have, third picture, we have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. The dangers and the threats that we face spiritually and otherwise, David uses three pictures to describe them. First, the judgments of God by way of flood. Secondly, the motivation of his enemies being malicious to steal, kill, and destroy, as Jesus affirms in John 10. And thirdly, deceptive, a trap, judgment's flood. If you're able, turn with me to Jonah 1.9. Jonah, of course, has run away from the call of God to go and to proclaim to a whole city, because the Lord has not been on your side, you are going to be destroyed in a short amount of time. And incidentally, in this city, they repented. It put on sackcloth and ashes from the king all the way down to the poorest among them. They allied themselves with heaven and they escaped the judgments of God. There's sort of an irony because before all this happened, Jonah, the unlikely, unwilling servant, was trying to run away from this calling. You guys remember what happened. But notice in verse 9, he said to them, as the people on the ship in this storm, that's about to destroy them. I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This is the confession at the end of Psalm 124 as well, creator of heaven and earth. 
Then the men were exceedingly afraid, you know, what should we do? He gives them instructions, verse 12, Jonah says to the deckhands, if you will, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this tempest has come upon you. What gave Jonah the confidence to say, throw me into the sea? Well, he knew that his God was the one who made the sea and the dry land. He also knew that although he had been in rebellion, that he was in covenant with his God. He knew his God would save him. He did not know how, I'm sure, but sure enough, salvation came by way of what, guys? How did God save Jonah from the sea? Yeah, a whale or a big fish. 2 verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord in my distress. From the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. He says, verse 3, You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the flood surrounded me. Your waves and your billows passed over me. But he says, I will look again on your holy temple. He praises the Lord for saving him from the flood of judgment he deserved. This is judgment's flood that uh, Jonah could relate to personally, but it also is a reference to what I call an event oracle all the way back in the days of Noah. God prepared a flood to destroy all the earth save eight people as a sign, as a signal that his judgments are to be feared forever, that men would never forget. And to the degree that they do, they're in trouble. These judgment floods remind us that the nature of the peril that we face is that the consequences of our sin are deserving of whole-scale destruction. This is a pattern of the biblical use of flood imagery. A judgment in the days of Noah begs us to ask this question. What is our relationship to the dangers that we face? Are we in Christ so even though judgment waters come, the Lord will save us by way of a boat or by way of a fish? Or are we vulnerable to the judgments of God? Because as unbelievers and an unregenerate people, we stand in the wake of his wrath. You know, if a dam breaks, there is some time before the river floods, let's say 10 miles downstream. But it's inevitable. You know, sometimes you see those pictures of a tsunami wave on the horizon. And people have a false sense of like, uh, they don't <coughs> respect or weigh the danger to the degree that they ought to, and then all of a sudden when that water hits, it's an inescapable force and a flood that swallows up the buildings and the people and the vehicles and can in an instant, instant destroy an entire settlement and wash everyone and everything out to sea. David compares the nature of the danger the people face to this. If it had not been the Lord who was on their side, the flood would have swept us away. The tsunami of the judgment we would otherwise deserve would eventually wipe the slate of humanity clean. It's happened before, and David says principally, we, this is to teach us something. It's what we deserve, and God's judgments will happen again unless we seek salvation in him alone. He says, like Jonah, this torrent would have gone over us, would have swallowed us. The raging waters would have been <clears throat> our, our demise, but the Lord has saved us. So this flood language reminds us that we are to heed the message of Noah and to become messengers like Noah. We ask ourselves, what is our relationship to the dangers that we face? Well, we may be deserving of God's wrath if we're unbelievers, or we may be um, due for some discipline like Jonah when his flood come ultimately will be saved. But 
God is instructing in his mercy that Jonah turn from his, the posture of his heart to be faithful to the Lord in his calling. Or we might find ourselves living amongst the people who deserve the judgments of God. There might be some collateral damage as the Lord brings a day of reckoning upon us. However, whatever the case we might face today, just as David recognized then, the message is to heed the word of God and to become a messenger of the word of God, to announce the nature of the peril that we stand in danger of unless we repent. Judgment's flood. Second picture, malicious enemies in verse 6. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. David knew something about prey animals. The Lord had delivered him twice, at least, from a lion and a bear. He knew that the intentions and the motivations of the lion and the bear were to devour the sheep. They weren't animals to be tamed. It's not like you could domesticate a lion and a bear and then herd them with your animals. No, that animals need to be defended by the diligent, by the conscientious shepherd, uh, with his rod and staff at hand to beat off any and, and to destroy to uh, disin or to take the enem the enemies and to re re uh, remove their power and to take away their teeth and when that rod was shoved down the throat if you will of the lion and of the bear it rendered them unable to sink their teeth their claws into these vulnerable sheep John ten ten through eleven. There's a distinction that Jesus draws between the hireling and the wolf and the great shepherd. The great shepherd, one who fulfills the picture of David of old, he cares for the sheep, he guards the sheep, he is the door to the sheepfold, if you will, and he lays down his life for the sheep. On the other hand, though, those who do not look to Christ, do not serve and do not lead and do not fight off the enemies, either in their own hearts or those that they are called to defend, they defer and abdicate the responsibility and then those under their charge or their own hearts become victim to hired hands and wolves. And what are they motivated by? They're motivated to steal, to kill, and to destroy. We think of the difference between David and Saul. Saul, in his unrepentant, rebellious wickedness, in his hard-hearted jealousy of David, he sought to steal, to kill, and to destroy David. David, however, recognized the anointing of God on Saul himself and did not even take the opportunity when it afforded him to take Saul's life outside of the Lord's will and command because he recognized that a godly king uh, defers to the authority of the Lord. This is a difference between a malicious enemy of the Lord and one who trusts him and serves him. This song illustrates the consequential stakes of wickedness. These are issues of mortal concern. It's easy to underestimate the danger of wickedness. Sometimes in our own hearts and in the world in which we live, we seek to make friends with the lion and the bear. But recognize, until and unless someone submits to Christ, they're not sheep, but their motives remain rebellious against the Lord. So while we have compassion, we must not underestimate the danger and therefore, we cry out that they would turn to the Lord for help. And in the meantime, we're vigilant to guard our own hearts and to guard against the malicious enemies who would seek to destroy the people of God. Judgments flood, malicious enemies, and thirdly, a deception's trap. Verse 7, 
we have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. A third way picture that David uses to describe the nature of the peril that the people face or the danger and threat it represents is that of a trap. What's a snare? It's a trap for catching Rabbits, yeah. You could also catch birds. In this case, a fowler is one who hunts birds. So traps have been used in, since ancient times. And uh, if you have some survival skills, kids, maybe you've set up your own snares in the woods. It's kind of like a noose, right? Or something of the sort. And there's typically a bait on one side that would attract the animal to it. Then unbeknownst to them, they don't see the trap. They're attracted to the bait. They go for that little bit of food, and then the consequences of their decision become immediately apparent when the more they struggle, the tighter the noose, and they are trapped. And so when you guys go back and check your trap lines, sure enough, I caught a rabbit. In the case of the fowler, he catches some kind of bird. There are traps like this laid for us, and if we take the bait of what the devil says and what the devil presents as something desirable, we will experience a similar end spiritually. But the Lord reveals those traps through the clarity of His Word and helps us to see clearly, to recognize that what people are proclaiming or selling or directing our attention toward might be that noose in disguise. Sure, there's a little bait at the end, but it's deception. It's a trap. It's a snare. The Lord, through His Word and through the truth that it upholds, delivers us from this kind of danger. <clears throat> the archetype, excuse me, the archetype for danger of this sort is another quote event oracle in scripture, and that would be the strategy of Balaam. We've covered this before, but Balaam is soon discovered, and he knew full well that they weren't the enemies of God's people were not going to defeat them with sword and spear. So he concocted a different plan. He carefully set a noose in the shape, if you will, of sexual immorality. And then he placed that in a tempting way with that bait of the young ladies of the pagans around where the young men were walking and going about their affairs and doing whatever. Well, sure enough, those young men saw the bait of the tantalizing, you know, desire or the promise of a romantic relationship with a pagan lady. And pretty soon there was covenant compromise in the camp, fraternization with the idol worshipers, and the enemy had made inroads into the camp not by sword and spear, but by a snare that was set with bait for the heart. And this is the kind of wickedness and evil that the scriptures teach us to discern. I love the picture in history as a metaphor of the Trojan horse. You remember the strong was at Troy, fortified city, and no one could break through their defenses. But the enemy had an idea. Let's do this a little different way. So they build a big old horse. Kids, you remember the story? There's a few guys hidden inside the horse. And so one day, Troy wakes up and they see, peering over the top of their gate, two weird eyes and some two-by-fours nailed together, as I imagine. And they look a little further, the gigantic horse on wheels. So they pull it through the gates because they're so curious and interested. I imagine they probably thought it was a gift from the gods. Oh, Zeus came down and gave us a horse. Oh, Hermes is here and they gave us a present. Oh, uh, Saturn arrived and he gave us this great horse. Let's pull it inside. You know, thank, 
Thank, uh, thank the gods from Mount Olympus for giving us this great gift. I'm sure it means we will defeat our invading enemies. We have strong forces. We have the favor of the gods. So if that, re, uh, if that fits, at least fits my analogy. So out of uh, the I- motives of idolatry, the assumption that this was a gift of a false god, they pull the horse through the gates. And in the night, those enemy warriors jump out. They set the whole place ablaze. And then the city is overtaken. You see... There's two kinds of defenses, physical ones, and then there's spiritual ones. The problem is that the inhabitants of Troy were idol worshipers. There was was more than one place of vulnerability where the devil could get them. Let me ask you a question. What is a bigger danger to America, illegal immigration or pride parades? Let me ask you a question again. What's a bigger danger to America, illegal immigration or shameless immorality represented by pride parades. You see the picture there? Now, you're going to be, you know, faced with all kinds of messaging this year in this political season. And a lot of it's going to be misleading and distracting. And what will most likely, I suggest to you, be overlooked is the vulnerability of our society because of our shameless immorality. You know, there's going to be people who will promise a bigger budget to defend us from enemies without. But who will identify the true deceptive snare, which is the immorality within? And to say truthfully that our shameless immorality is a bigger danger in this nation than our poorest borders. And I suggest to you that is the case. So this is a national example. But don't dismiss the personal application for a big picture example. Think of your own heart your desires towards wickedness that sometimes show themselves when it seems like no one's looking and you're tempted to break covenant with the Lord. In times like this, you are faced with a bait and deceptions trap. You may have a good security plan for your household, but are you obeying the law of God on the inside? And which is a bigger issue? The nature of peril, the danger and threat we face comes by way of judgments flood, the judgments of God Malicious enemies, the bad guys, easier to, to recognize. But thirdly, deception's trap. That's a more wily one that the Word of God prepares us to oppose, but we must be vigilant to stand against as well. So this is the middle portion where David gives praise to the Lord for delivering them from all three. And this, in light of his kingly rule and the king pointing the people to the, to the Lord in this worship service, we see that God has given them the victory. And this closes thus with the people declaring the name of the Lord and his power and his glory. So just to wrap up with this final point, a king's song for the people declares a national confession, the nature of peril, and verse 8, the name of the Lord. Our psalm closes, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And let's repeat that together. Our help earth. Thank you. So our help is in the name of the Lord, the name Yahweh. Where do we turn in our distress? Yahweh, of course, this name was introduced to the people of God through the ministry of Moses all the way back in Exodus 3. There we have precedent for this appeal. This uh, reference or this question, where do we turn in our distress, was a very important question, very pressing one for Moses when he was facing the danger of, of uh, staring down Pharaoh and commanding him to let his people go. In Exodus 3, as God has given him this charge, Moses, uncertain, lack of confidence, small in his faith, responds, negotiates with the Lord, verse 13 of Exodus 3. 
Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The Lord of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people, I am has sent me to you. So to the people residing in Egypt on the tyranny of Pharaoh's enslaving hand, Moses was to say, Yahweh has sent me. This is the authority of the name that he represents. That wouldn't be the only place where Moses, representing the authority of Yahweh, must take his stand. He must also do so in the courts of Pharaoh and ask, please, Pharaoh, let my people go so that we might worship the Lord for several days in the wilderness. God prepared him for Pharaoh saying, yeah, no way, Jose. Modern parlance there. That's a paraphrase, not an exact quote from Scripture. <laughs> Pharaoh will not let uh, the people go and worship the Lord in the wilderness. And God says, this is my intention, by the way. I am going to, through this request, harden Pharaoh's heart so much that he will double down. And in the end, I will deliver everybody. But you must insist with the signs and wonders that I promise to accompany your profession that I am stronger than Pharaoh. What would give Moses the confidence to, uh, with Pharaoh, to face Pharaoh in this kind of distress, in this kind of danger, in this kind of peril? Well, it is the word of the Lord and it is the name of the Lord. The Lord revealed himself as a fire that cannot be quenched, as a source of power that is non-contingent in the burning bush revelation. He is the source and authority that in and of himself is sufficient to fulfill his covenant, a fire that needs no fuel. This precedent for the name of the Lord was to be the source of help that believers for all ages would refer to in David's day and in ours. David knew when he said that the name of the Lord is our help, that he was appealing to the name of the Lord that was given to Moses. Think of it, Moses he stands in his hesitation in this situation. What kind of peril did he face? The greatest empire on earth. Moses himself, a fugitive, had fled for his own life from Egypt's authority. He was a felon. He had broken law. He deserved the death penalty as far as Egypt was concerned. So he had run away. He had limited speaking abilities. He was not an impressive, impressive orator. He had neither the command, the charisma, the gravitas, or, you know, the remarkable standing in his current situation. Perhaps Pharaoh would listen to a king of another nation, but would he listen to a man who had ran away, a fugitive shepherd, who really is now good at speaking? You know, you could see how fearful this situation might be. And then, on top of this, he was going to demand the release of the Hebrew slaves. And if Pharaoh was to obey his words, what would that threaten? With the loss of these slaves, so Pharaoh would lose his legacy, his power, his economy, his authority, his future glory, and the perceived dignity among his people. Who shall I say sends me when I demand of the king, let my people go? The answer is, I am. The answer is, Yahweh, who can turn a river to blood, who can turn rods into snakes, who can command and the sun be darkened, the crops be destroyed by hail, and that plagues of flies and lice infect the land. At his word they come and his word they go. 
the sun god Ra is defeated when the god of heaven and earth shuts off that light for a while, reminding the idol worshipers that they serve idols carved in their own imagination from blocks of stone under the sands of the local geography and have no power to save them. He serves the one who has the power to split the Red Sea in two heaps when his brooding spirit wind blows all night long and stands it on either side to make a straight path for his people to pass and to escape from the strongest army the world had known to that time unto the promised land. That's who sends you. Now, all this Moses had to take by faith, but we can take it by the record in Scripture. When the Lord calls us to stand in the wake of the peril or the judgment or the difficulties or the snares that are set for us, where do we rely on? Where do we turn for confidence? Same place that Moses did and David did. Yahweh, I am. Our help is in the name of the Lord. And just to put another emphasis, to underline it even more, David closes with this confession, who, speaking of the Lord, made heaven and earth. By the way, this is a universal reference to all the cosmos. God has made the earth, the material realm. God has made the heaven, the immaterial realm. Everything spiritual, everything physical, God has created by the word of his power. All the created realm is therefore under his command. They are servants, they are slaves to his will, the earth and the heavens. How important is the doctrine of creation to your faith, Christian? How important is the doctrine of creation to the Christian faith? Well, according to David, pretty important. According to the Bible, pretty important. The Bible opens with an acknowledgement, an affirmation, a revelation of God by the word of his power, a creator of heaven and earth. John opens his gospel by saying the one who spoke the world into existence in the first place, the word of God is revealed in the flesh among you. And these references join a lot from scripture. We won't go to these today, but I did include quite a long list in your notes if you have them. There's another idea for you. You could go to some of these references this week and ask that question. How important is the doctrine of creation to my faith? And see what Psalm 115.15 would say. What Psalm 121.2 says, or 134 3 or 146.6. Review what Isaiah 44.24 says, or Isaiah 45.18. Again, these are in your notes. More prophets like Jeremiah in chapter 10, verse 12, or 32, verse 17. Like Jonah, as we read, or like in the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 24, or Paul when he preaches at the Areopagus among a pagan people in an impressive empire in 1724. What gave strength and authority and confidence for Paul facing his enemies, the entire Roman Empire, or David, Goliath, and all his Philistines, or Moses, Egypt, and everything it could boast at the time. It was the affirmation that the Lord, Yahweh, made heaven and earth. In our age, this is a message that we need to be remembered. Uh, parents, as you homeschool your children, how important is it that your children know without a shadow of doubt that God created everything? The world is His, the seas and all that is in them, the heavens and the earth are His domain. He spoke them by the word of His power into existence, and they are maintained not by the laws of nature first and foremost, but those laws are obedient to their design and reflection of his character, and they quantify his providence as gravity keeps us on this planet because God has designed and maintained this universe 
and from the day it was created until the day that he brings in the new heavens and new earth and closes this eschaton with a display of his glory, just like he displayed in the, in the early days. So he will again, he will create it again. How important is it that you teach your kids, parents, that God made the world? Well, whoever owns the claim to creation in the minds of your children will be their source of confidence. That's where their allegiance will be. So teach them that Jesus Christ is the creator of the heavens and the earth. And when they one day then face judgments and peril and so forth and difficulty and challenges, they can stand with Moses, with David. They can stand with you in confidence that the creator of heaven and earth is our help. Our help is in the name of the Lord. If he had not been on our side, we would have been swallowed. But we say with Israel, the Lord is on our side. He has raised us up. Though we deserved his judgments, in Christ he has saved us from the raging waters. Blessed be his holy name. Though our enemies were formidable, he is stronger still. He has not given us his prey to the teeth, but our good shepherd has laid down his life to save us. And as such, we have escaped like a bird, and he will give us grace to escape as we cling to his word. From the snare that the fowler, our enemy, sets before us, our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Father, for your holy word. Thank you for the message that it gives us. Thank you for the reminder, Lord, in the days where we go dull of hearing because of the flesh, the difficulties that we are in ourselves ill-equipped to face. Nevertheless, we find in you a refuge and a strength. Your word confesses to us that your name is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. So far as the word has been properly proclaimed today, may we run to it and be safe. And this week, as we open your scriptures, may we do so with that same heart to fortify our souls in a day when they are challenged and to stand, Lord Jesus, that we might have the victory in Christ and to glorify you when we receive it, knowing that it is not of us, but it is our hero Christ who has saved us, redeemed us, preserved us, commissioned us, and called us to stand for him no matter what the world might bring. Thank you for these reassurances. If there are any lost in the hearing of this message today, may the proclamation of your name and power con uh, convict them and draw them to repentance and faith. May our numbers be joined by more who seek to ally with you, knowing that their Savior is Jesus Christ, the Son of David, who has conquered sin on their behalf. In his holy name we pray, amen.